and welcome. My name is Dr Nadia Imran and I am a consultant psychiatrist in South West Yorkshire in the Mental Health Liaison Team. I am also the online CPD or editor for the Royal College of Psychiatrists. Today, I am glad to say that we are joined by Sir Michael Marmot and Dr Amrit Satcher. Sir Michael Marmot has been Professor of Epidemiology at University College London since 1985 and is the Director of the UCL Institute of Health Equity. He is the author of The Health Gap, The Challenge of an Unequal World and Status Syndrome. Sir Marmot has led research groups on health inequalities for nearly 50 years. He chaired the World Health Organization Commission on the Social Determinants of Health, several WHO regional commissions and reviews on tackling health inequalities for governments in the UK. He was a member of the Royal Commission on Environmental Pollution for six years and in 2000 he was knighted by Her Majesty the Queen for services to epidemiology and the understanding of health inequalities. Professor Marmot was appointed a Companion of Honour for Services to Public Health Inc. in the King's 2023 New Year's Honours. Dr Amrit Satcher has been a liaison psychiatry consultant and worked in West London NHS Trust since 2005, where she is a Freedom to Speak Up champion and is leading the organisation's work on medical workforce race equality standards. Amrit's main clinical interests are around integration of mental and social health care into physical health care delivery. She is particularly interested in addressing the care gaps for people with intersectional protected characteristics, a history of trauma or diagnoses of implicit exclusion, for example, personality disorder and substance misuse. Welcome both. Today we are going to be discussing health inequalities. Thank you for joining us today. So, what are health inequalities and health inequities? And and by this, we're talking in a public health and a public mental health context. Well, traditionally, we've thought of, of health inequalities as being the systematic differences in health between social groups defined by some measure of socioeconomic position, income, education, occupation, social class, or latterly the level of deprivation of the area in which people live. More recently, we've thought about inequalities between groups defined in other ways, between ethnic minorities and white British, for example, uh, people with disability and not with disability sexual orientation. The inequity part, the way we've used the language, is following the World Health Organization as those systematic inequalities between social groups that are judged to be avoidable by reasonable means and are not avoided. Hence, unfair, inequitable. So you notice the name of my institute is the Institute of Health Equity, not Health Equality. So it's not that we're seeking equal health for all social groups. We're seeking uh, to reduce the avoidable inequalities in health between social groups. Now, we can have a debate of what avoidable by reasonable means means if you're from the right and you think taxation is theft 
then it would be unreasonable for the government to spend any money to improve living conditions for poor people. Well, most of us don't take that view. We think it's quite reasonable for the government to spend money to improve living conditions for poor people. But that's the kind of debate as to when inequalities become inequitable. How has the landscape of health inequalities changed over the past 10 years, globally, nationally and locally? If I may, Amrit, um, if we look globally, the progress is being pretty good, really. Let's take um, under five mortality rates. Under five mortality uh, is closely linked to poverty. So it's really quite a good measure of poverty. You know, if you're in Iceland, the under five mortality is about two or three per thousand live births. In sub-Saharan Africa, it was, in many countries, 100, 150. So that's the sort of global scale from two or three in Iceland to 150 in some sub-Saharan African countries. That global scale's got smaller. The gap between the poor countries, low and middle income countries, in under five mortality, uh, and the rich countries got smaller. When I started to chair the WHO Commission on Social Determinants of Health, there were some sub-Saharan African countries with life expectancy of 40. You can't find any now. Um, we're talking about 50, 60. Uh, life expectancy in Brazil's in the 70s. Wow, that's amazing. So globally, health inequalities have got smaller. When we look within countries, and particularly if we look over the last decade, health inequalities have got bigger. If we look in the UK at where people live and classify where people live by level of deprivation, the inequalities starting in around, well, start 2010, 11, 12, the inequalities started to get bigger. And in fact, in the UK, life expectancy declined in the poorest people outside London. So not only over the last decade of the inequalities got bigger, health actually got worse for the poorest people. We did a report for the um, government of Norway Norway looks good on just about every measure that you can think of. And yet the inequalities have been getting bigger, even in Norway. So it's whereas globally, the gap between countries has been getting smaller within countries. In many countries, uh, the inequalities have been getting bigger. And I think that's where some of the intersectionality issues come in as well. So there's not just the poverty um, issue. There's the um, many other um, disadvantages that people experience. Um, and the concept of intersectionality is when um, you have more than one disadvantage um, added together they ha seem to have a synergistic effect in your disadvantage and the inequitous outcomes that you, you 
um, experience. And so we know, for example, um, that people with a severe and enduring mental illness die 15 to 20 years younger than their counterparts. Um, what's less known or less talked about, but actually very well documented, is that um, people with emotionally unstable personality disorder or other personality disorders also die 15 to 20 years younger than their counterparts. And um, people with learning disabilities die even um, the, the uh, life expectancy discrepancy is even greater. So you've got all these additional factors adding in. Um, and just to um, Michael's point earlier about inequities, I suppose there's just for the audience, just to be really clear about the difference between equality and equity. I, I, I'm never quite sure if people fully understand the, the, the importance of what Michael was talking about with the inequity issue. It's equality is giving the same resource to everybody, regardless of their need. Um, and equality in an unequal world is not fair. Um, and equity is about allocating the appropriate resource where it's needed according to your need. But I, I think so certainly at the college, we are trying to move from a position of um, equality, aiming for equality, to moving that to equity. Well, uh, there's another whole debate uh, that people have. Uh, and it's a philosophical debate and a political debate that um, Amrit touched on it when she said it's giving equal resource to everyone. Um, the, the debate is, are we talking about equality of opportunity or equality of outcome, to put it simply? And um, in the past, the what the economic historian Robert Fogel called the third great awakening in the US. Um, the, the outcome was what was important, equality of outcome. All politicians sign up to equality of opportunity. Uh, which politicians going to get up and say, I think that um, women should have less opportunity than men. People of South Asian ethnicity should have less opportunity than whites. If you're in Alabama, maybe they'd say that, but uh, uh, well, maybe they wouldn't even say that in Alabama anymore, but they used to say that. But so no politicians going openly to say there should be inequality of opportunity, but a lot will desist from saying there should be inequality of outcome. Um, and, but in practice, equality of opportunity is a chimera, doesn't exist in our society. So the di although conceptually there's a real difference between equality of opportunity and equality of outcome, in practice, they're not so different. If you're um, to pick up Amrit's theme of intersectionality, if you're a girl, of Afro-Caribbean background, born to a poor family, and to say, yeah, you've got an equal opportunity. You could go to Cambridge 
Well, <laughs> maybe, um, but you don't have the same opportunity if you're a white boy born to an upper income family whose parents were educated at Oxbridge. Um, so there's not equality of opportunity. Um, and that's why this distinction between equality of outcome and equality of opportunity is in a way a false one. Yeah, totally agree. And um, yeah, so just talking about the, the, the various barriers that you just described there, Michael, um, they don't get looked at. Um, so there's a thing within human resources at the moment where we're kind of not allowed to really talk about positive action to make up for the barriers that people have experienced. So if, for example, so we're talking, uh, yeah, okay, so if, for example, before you even show up at work, um, it's Black History Month when we're recording this, I don't know when this is going to go out, but if before you even show up at work, you um as a black woman have had to have the talk with your um teenage son about what to do if he gets picked up by the police and then you've been followed around um by security in the supermarket um uh before you've even got to work you've actually create you've actually gone through quite a lot of emotional labor and um uh, multiple mini traumas um, which people get used to and kind of put to the side. But all of that stuff is releasing cortisol and is having an impact on your path, uh, pathophysiology. Um, and that's before you even start your day. So um, being able to compete with your peer who hasn't gone through that in the workplace, it, that's that we, we live in a myth of meritocracy. Um, and if that's the only thing that people take away um, from this, I would be really pleased. So what do we mean by the life course approach and how do exposures, protective and risk in early life affect mental health in later life? I'll well, start with Professor Mum. Um, I spoke at my uncle's funeral earlier this year. He died age 101. And I said that he and his brother, who died three years ago, died at age 100. Um, I was really annoyed. They were really irritating because their long, flourishing lives contradicted everything I'd written about. I talk about the importance of child poverty at affecting people's lives. And I said, I blame my grandmother. Um, for uh, breaking this chain, but it's because they grew up in poverty. And what we know and what the evidence shows is that uh, growing up in poverty, I mean, in low and middle income countries, you may not survive the first five years of life. But for those who do survive, there are two kinds of effects that have lifelong influences. One is lack of the positive and the other is presence of the negative. So we know, thinking about the mind quite apart from the influences on other parts of the body, but we know the positive of nurturing from parents or other carers um, 
talking to children, loving them, playing with them, singing with them, uh, leads to good cognitive development, psychological, emotional, behavioural, linguistic development. And that predicts how well kids do in school. And that in turn predicts the kind of skills they get, the kind of job they get, how much they earn, where they live. And it has an impact on adult physical and mental health. And it all starts in early childhood. And when I talk about lack of the good, what we know is those positive nurturing activities from parents or others follow the social gradient. The greater the deprivation, the less likely are parents to hug, cuddle, sing, play, read, do all those good things with kids. Then the negative are the adverse childhood experiences parental separation, physical abuse, mental abuse, sexual abuse, incarceration of parents, separation of parents, each of which follows the social gradient. The greater the deprivation, the more frequent are nine different adverse childhood experiences. And we know uh, good evidence based now, children particularly who've had four or more adverse childhood experiences, increased risk of mental illness, of violent behavior, of drug and alcohol abuse, uh, less likely to have healthy behaviors like non-smoking and the like. And that all starts with early childhood. And so that's in addition to looking at things like living up, living in a cold home, which damages children's lungs or being exposed to mold in the home, which damages children's lungs, can even kill children. And that all starts in early childhood, both healthy bodies, healthy minds, and it predicts what happens through the life course. Now, for people like me who spend a lot of time studying the health of middle-aged and older people, we tended to assume people sprung fully formed into middle age, but of course they don't. Um, and what happens early in life has a profound impact on where people end up later in life. Yeah. And so that, that uh, Michael's describing the seminal study about um, the adverse childhood experience by Folletti et al., um, which really interesting for me was um, initially um came about because um he was running a really successful weight loss program and he had a group of people cohort of people who were dropping out they were they were losing weight but they were dropping out um so he went to study those people and um so having worked in a bariatric service um it's there there's some really interesting stuff around um how people um manage their uh, internalized trauma so the things that we call bad behavior or bad choices are actually um they were adaptive choices for that person at one stage they that's the way that they were as michael was describing if they weren't soothed by their caregivers um they learned to get soothing from another source so whether that would be drugs or alcohol or um, eating or shopping or sex addiction but it's anything to kind of give you that um, dopamine drive um, that 
um, ends up causing um, uh, life choices that make their lives shorter. Um, so there's some really interesting work on um, being able to do some reparative work. So Michael's work is very much about the sort of system level um uh, but it, you know as individuals who are listening to this in terms of um psychiatrists um thinking about how you can counteract that individual person's experience or um assumptions about how hostile the world is um every interaction that we have um with them is an opportunity to either reinforce that um, assumption or to chip away at it a little bit. And I, it can be really hard to um, activate our compassion in the middle of the night in A&E. Um, but that's what I think we need to be doing. So um, th these are people who've had um, an absence or lack of compassion in their life experiences and they're seeking that soothing through other um, behaviours and so if we uh, yeah so us coming from a compassionate point of view is really important so that's one of the things that um, Lade Smith that um, has really prioritised by um, appointing a presidential lead at the college for compassionate and relational care. I think that's a really key aspect. Really interesting. So with that in mind, what role do social and structural determinants play in health inequality? So we're talking about things like racism, discrimination and stigma. Well, it's very easy to exaggerate individual agency. Uh, I've done a lot of research on how important it is um, for people's health to have control over their lives, but to exaggerate how much individuals actually are in control of things. And what we know, so for example, if you look at the police, um, you could say, well, an individual copper is a bad actor. And in fact, that's what um, the politicians tend to say, a few bad apples. And you can say, well, just get those few individual policemen to behave better and then it'll all be all right. You could be a young black teenager on the streets of London. And once we got rid of those six bad policemen, then nobody will ever stop you for no reason ever again. But that's garbage. It me, you know, it runs through the system. It's actually the way the system works. Uh, and if uh, we, we can think about structural and institutional racism uh, slightly differently, structural. I think about it as really coming deeply in society. And that's hard to change. To change people's culture and attitudes, that's really hard to change. We need to, but it's hard to do. Institutional racism, we can change that. We can change that. Just say, you know, get a few rules in there. You there's uh, make it impossible to discriminate against people 
based on whether they're disabled or not disabled, whether they're of a particular ethnic group or not, whether their sexual orientation, to say that we won't do that anymore. That's ruled out. And my guess is, and I really do try and distinguish when I'm confident because I've got data and when I'm not, and I'm guessing. Uh, my guess is if you change the institutions, you start to change individual behaviors and attitudes. Um, partly you do it, you know, as an individual. If we think about ourselves, you partly do it because uh, it's the rules. But then you do it because you do it. Um, I mean, you know, forgive me for personal thing, but there's no way I would tell um, an Irish joke or something, you know, or a Polish joke. I just wouldn't do it anymore. I might have when I was younger and thought that was funny, but I wouldn't do it anymore, even in private. I wouldn't do it in private because it's it's bad. You know, it's not funny. Um, and it, now you may say that's ridiculous to take it down to that level. But, you know, because it's unacceptable publicly, in the end, I find it unacceptable privately yeah. um, to do it. So I think you change the institution. Maybe you start taking steps to change the structures. Yeah. And... Now, that's in relation to racism. We spoke earlier about socioeconomic inequalities, and there's been a lot of discussion about individual responsibility. I was asked just today, you know, wasn't the NHS founded on the idea that, uh, well, the NHS will treat people, but it's up to individuals to take responsibility to make sure they don't get sick. I mean, look what happened during the pandemic. You know, there was the slogan, stay home, don't get sick to protect the NHS. I thought, what? I thought, it was supposed to be the other way around. Wasn't the NHS supposed to protect us? We're supposed not to get sick to protect the NHS. So this is, well, it's up to you as individuals. Well, yeah, if you're living in an overcrowded, multi-generational household, if you've got to go out to work in a frontline occupation, um, it, it's not up to you not to get sick. You're it's the structures that are leading to your getting sick. Um, it's not your individual responsibility. And so you're told to read to your children every night. You know, well-being people like me think it's good to read to your children. You know, that's what the data show. So read them bedtime stories. And the response might be, I would if I was sure I had a bed. You know, we're homeless. And let alone a book, um, let alone that I'm depressed mm -hmm. and I haven't got it in me to read to children who are screaming because we're all crowded into one room because we're in temporary accommodation. I mean, I'm, I'm giving the extreme example. But so the structures, whether we're talking about racism and discrimination, whether we're talking about socioeconomic inequalities, the structures are key. 
And we want, I should say, the aim to be to create the conditions where people can exercise agency, take individual responsibility for their health. But they can't do that if the structures and the institutions are against them. And it's interesting, um, we are encouraged to vilify those people. So one of my pet hates is um, there's such a lot of programmes on the television about um, benefit scroungers and um, people who are, you know, making making some money through um nefarious routes but nevertheless um it is small money and yet we'll we'll let the corporations get away with billions um uh, and yeah i think i think that's slightly well hugely problematic i was just gonna um talk about the just picking up on a couple of michael's points there was the the issue of institutional um discrimination um I think what we need to be alert to, and again, this goes back to what we can do individually in the workplace, is really be alert to um, policies that we think, policies or initiatives that we think are um, positive. So we might come up with a new um, service design or service provision or quality improvement, which actually inadvertently disadvantages um people who are already disadvantaged. And I remember being given an example of this, which really hit it home for me. Um, the fact that a lot of CAM services, so children and adolescents and mental health services, um, might be geared towards self-harming. Um, and that would be a criteria to allow, um, to, to admit a patient into a service. Um, those um, would tend to be um, more focused on girls and teenage women um, and um, maybe more white as well. Whereas if you're a young black boy who maybe has had the same um, adverse childhood experiences, but is manifesting your trauma or your distress in a different way, um, maybe through more um, aggressive and outward um, behaviour, there is no service for you in a lot of CAM services. So you're more likely to um, end up in the school to prison pipeline. Um, whereas if you're a young white girl, you're more likely to get the CAM service. So nobody built that in. Nobody thought I want to advantage a certain group of people or disadvantage a certain group of people. So I think it's something about going above um, conscious levels and just understand some unconscious biases. And so people might be aware of um, something called an equality impact assessment that all services have to do all the time. But I think they've turned into a tick box exercise. Um, and again, one of the things that we're trying to do at the college, um, hopefully, is trying to get th people thinking about um, equity um, impact assessments rather than equality impact assessments that are more nuanced and looking at who might be getting disadvantaged in the process. And then I just wanted to um, talk about um, Michael's examples of how we change attitudes 
there's a big kind of argument at the moment, people noticing that there's more black and brown people on adverts. Um, and there's a bit of a backlash about that at the moment that they that the percentage of black and brown people on adverts is completely um, disproportionate to the percentage of black and brown people in our society. But actually what's been happening for decades is we've had negative representations of black and brown people on um, pop, in popular culture um, in a way that was out of proportion to um, the lives that those people led. And I think having something that counteracts that and is beamed into people's homes is no bad thing because we do need the p pendulum to swing in the opposite direction a little bit. And I certainly know my mother-in-law's attitude towards black people has changed through watching EastEnders over the decades because they've been beamed into her home and she's kind of um, been able to connect with their stories. And can I pick up from a different um, national perspective? When I was leading the Commission on Equity and Health Inequalities in the Americas, one of our commissioners was a First Nations woman from Canada. <clears throat> and I, I'm, I'm caricaturing slightly here. I said arrogantly, oh, I understand the problems of First Nation people in Canada. You know, I've got a model, you know, of social determinants of health. And she said, yeah, I said, I'm caricatures slightly. She said, you're ignorant, but you're worth educating. Um, <laughs> so she and her colleagues spent a bit of time educating me and she said what you're missing out yes all those social determinants that you talk about do apply to First Nations Canadians but what you're missing out is our culture our commitment to the land and cultural traditions so um, it's important to say this we're not saying that everybody should be the same we should recognize um, the, the positive contribution that people from different cultures make and what my Canadian colleague was saying of First Nations people um, have a different approach to the land and cultural traditions. And there's evidence that that's good for mental health. And there was a, it's an old study now, but very compelling um, in First Nation Canadians in British Columbia, the youth suicide rate is astonishingly high, several times higher than among white Canadians. And these researchers did a study of First Nation bands in British Columbia. There were about 200 different bands. And they noted that there were very low suicide rates in some and high in others, and it was graded. And they classified them by the degree, the degree to which the communities had control over major services, teaching, nursing, police, and the like, and were involved in participation about land rights. And the more community control not individual control, the more community control, the more cultural cohesion, the lower the adolescent suicide rate. So this is key, recognizing the positive aspects of culture, 
uh, and not discriminating, not turning that into a negative. Just picking up on um, Michael's point, it's a really important point when we're talking about inequalities and inequities to um, not take a a purely deficit based approach we need to take an asset based approach so all all the things we're missing out on that um um people who are different from the majority um in your community um that the different perspectives that they bring um rather than just saying these people are less than and how do we um provide them the support they need um and uh, the first nations approach to the land is absolutely what this what the planet needs right now so yeah just wanted to um endorse that so Amri, with all this in mind what is the role of psychiatrists in addressing these health inequalities individually but also collectively um so for, for me i think there's something about um opening your so there's something about educating yourself in the way that um, michael was um gratefully educated by his first nations colleague um so taking the responsibility to um find out more about um what your biases might be um and i would then individually i would invite people you there's if you're an st or a ct um you you may think you've got very little power but um if you take a curiosity based approach to what um people are telling you when you meet them and think about how they may, may be getting disadvantaged how they may be presenting and showing up um at that moment because of all these disadvantages and barriers um that have faced them um and and what you can do to take a slightly different approach to that would be really useful i think the other thing that you can do if you if you're organizing or setting up quality improvement projects and service improvements just think about um who your uh, service improvement project is going to help and who might still be disadvantaged because there is a risk with every service improvement project um we actually widen the disparities so we if we put in an equal amount of resource and we only think of the people who don't have very many barriers to services um what we'll do is we'll improve things for that group um but leave the others behind so for ex- an, an a, a simplistic example is um thinking about um services uh for talking therapies um and i mean this wouldn't happen now but there would have been a time where um we didn't include um access to talking therapies of different languages um so it would be the people who are already marginalized in this country as um immigrants maybe refugees maybe not speaking the language so their outcomes are already likely to be worse um somebody wonderful has set up a service in the in the area that um 
excludes them because they don't offer that language. Um, that person, that um, group of project managers is thinking, well, in phase two, we'll do the language bit. Um, but often what happens is the money runs out or um, something runs out and we never quite get round to it. So I would say um, if you are in the position of designing services, design around the most disadvantaged first. And actually the way you design your service will have an improvement benefit for everybody. So rather than designing for the most advantaged, think about the most disadvantaged and then co-production, co-production, co-production. It's outrageous in this day and age to be doing work that impacts people with lived experience without them um, involved in a meaningful way right at the beginning. And I think there's something about educating people with lived experience so that they can contribute in a meaningful way. But I also think the thing that we're missing is educating healthcare and social care professionals to understand how to work with lived, people with lived experience in a meaningful way. So that's my call to action for people. Think about equity and design for the most disadvantaged. Think about the people with lived experience as having something to offer rather than you just giving them a lift up and think about compassion. It sounds very simple, but very important. Compassion is at the heart of what we do, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Thoughts on that question, Michael? What's our responsibility as psychiatrists? How can we address we've this? Been, we've been working with um, now integrated care systems. Um, with the East London Foundation Trust, which has responsibility for mental health for the whole community. And we're working with them to see how they can address the social determinants of health. Now, this is a trust that has responsibility for mental health, addressing the social determinants of health. Now, individual psychiatrists can't do that alone. Um, they've got to do it as part of organized activities. But people on the front line, like individual psychiatrists, can recognize the problem and say, right, we need to deal with this. If you're a child psychiatrist and a child's being abused, you don't say, well, nothing I can do. Um, you know, I'm not a social worker. I can't change housing. So fine, let the child be abused. Um, you don't say that. You say, right, how can we mobilize the system so this isn't happening anymore, so we can do something about it? So recognizing the problem and recognizing the need for social action. And Amrit, rightly, and I agree completely, has talked about what the individual psychiatrists can do. And I talk about what the organization can do of which the individual psychiatrist is a key part. Where do I think this is all going? Uh, I, often I get asked, am I optimistic? And it's a bit hard right at the moment to declare yourself an optimist um, what, with what's going on in the world, ghastly stuff all over the place. Um, but I'm hopeful. I'm which is a bit different. It's not saying let's stand back 
everything will get better, don't worry. It's saying, I'm hopeful that if we, psychiatrists, public health people, GPs, nurses, ambulance drivers, everybody uh, gets involved, understands these issues, we can really make a difference. We can make the future look brighter. So it looks pretty grim at the moment. Um, and there's not so much any one of us individually can do, but together we really can make a difference. I'm hopeful. And I, and I would say, well, what's the alternative? But you have to be, don't you? You do things, um, even you can, you can have hope even if there's a small chance of success, but especially when the alternative is pretty grim. So I agree. And it's collective action. Okay, Michael and Amri, thank you very much for joining us today. That brings us to the end of this podcast. If you would like to gain CPD credits for this, please complete the short module test associated with this podcast. Thank you again for listening to this CPD e-learning podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at rcpsych underscore e-learn. And to listen to more podcasts from the CPD e-learning portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.